and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? My name is Naomi Schaefer-Riley, and I'm a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And I am Ian Rowe, also a resident fellow at AEI. And today we are lucky to be joined by Matt Feeney. He is the author of a new book called Little Platoons, A Defense of Family in a Competitive Age. Thanks so much for joining us today, Matt. My pleasure. My pleasure. So I I guess I should start with the most obvious question. Can you tell us a little bit about the title? Where does the phrase Little Platoons come from for people who don't know? And how do you think it relates to our understanding of family today? So Little Platoons is a a phrase, and it's a a much-loved phrase by conservatives from Edmund Burke's Reflections on Revolution in France. And it's it's supposed to denote areas of what, what we consider civil society that are kind of independent from say, a central government, such as in family, in, in, as I portray a family, as the kind of the core unit of these little platoons. Other things would include churches, clubs, perhaps if you're a laborite, it could be a labor unions, but, but, but civic associations, this kind of thing. And so, yeah, so I thought the title was actually my agent's idea. I had a different title. <laughs> as, interestingly enough, I throw think, the agent under the bus. Well, you know, I mean, but as the book evolved, I have to say, and this kind of comes out, especially in the introduction, the, the kind of fighting valence of the phrase little platoons ends up having something of an ironic significance within my argument because I end up making the argument that there are kind of like our impulse to our very entirely natural and healthy impulse to fight for our kids within a particular environment. It gets hijacked and let's say enlisted into unhealthy feedback loops of competition among, among families. And so little platoons, to me, the title little platoons at once kind of like lingers over the book as a kind of fond evocation of a kind of Burkean understanding of this little unit of loyalty and, and solidarity. Also, it was kind of fraught with this ironic lament about how treating our, our families as these kind of fighting units in contemporary society ends up putting us in these binds as parents and as families. So tell us a little bit before we go on about your own little platoon and your own family and kind of when some of these ideas in the book started to occur to you, you know, just particularly this idea that really enjoyed in the book that all of these other institutions of society, government and sports leagues and higher education, and we'll get to all of these, that those are sort of infringing on the autonomy of your little platoon. So your kids are still pretty young. So tell us kind of when this first started, you know, you're feeling like everyone was preventing you from raising the, raising your kids the way you wanted to. All right. So the book, the book grew out of an article I wrote for the New Yorker online back in 2016 called The Poisonous Reach of the College Admissions Process. And in, the, in that book, I started out just to write about how competition in certain suburban high schools had kind of gotten out of control. And there's kind of controversies about how principals were trying to ratchet down the pressure and certain people wanted the academic pressure to stay up and this kind of thing. And at the time I wrote this, my oldest, I have three kids and my oldest is, was in fifth grade at the time. She's now a ninth grader. No, she was in fourth grade. And I remember just kind of like looking ahead from this standpoint onto this kind of competitive atmosphere that I was reading about and just thinking, this is crazy. I'm not, not, I mean, I guess my, my, my response was, was a kind of resentment that it, it had to be done this way. That, and because my intuition was that this was not because people were really striving to kind of educate their kids as, as well as they could. So in other words, they were not striving for a particular telos, a particular end for their family, for their children. They were kind of looking horizontally at each other and responding to, to competitive cues from each other. Because they kind of found themselves caught in this competitive trap where they had to do what, what everyone else was doing in order to just keep their head above the water in this competitive game that they felt that they were in. And so for me, there was a kind of, you know, I have this background in, in Kantian political theory, and I have this kind of recourse to a kind of, every once in a while, I just get kind of crankily kind of like, you know, take a stand and just think this is irrational. This doesn't make any sense. And to me, it was just very contrary to what I thought my vocation was as a 
a parent to steer my family in this direction of competition, not in order to kind of realize a goal that I thought was inherent to you know, family life and my, my vocation as a parent, but instead rather to survive within these feedback loops of competition. And it just seemed to me an irrational, it seemed to me a kind of Hobbesian scenario that we were caught in that, that is on its face irrational and, and harmful to families. And so that was the, that was the origin of it. So I, you know, and so I ended up writing this article on college admissions and admissions has a spectacular role in this whole drama that we'll, we'll get to. But, you know, the, everything leading up to admissions kind of like was, was kind of part of the, of the larger lament. Yeah. I mean, I love the title of Little Platoons as a sort of analogy for these, our families being these fighting units. And it is the sense of competition. So in my own town, I've talked to Naomi about this, you know, on Sunday mornings, you know, church is thinning out because the sports leagues all schedule their games literally during the times of church. And same thing on Saturday mornings for the Jewish community. And, and so I'm curious, and I'm starting to try and organize the faith leaders in town to say, can we at least write a letter to the sports organizers to say, can we hold our ground? So this idea of little platoons it also seems to apply to all the other institutions as well, have to sort of carve out their own territory. Yeah. So, so that's an interesting, so that you would you think of the, your church as being this thing that's very much kind of, you know, intimately entwined with your, your job as, as parents, right? That you're, that this is something that is, that you're doing for the inherent value of the, the reasons we go to church and, and to have this thing kind of shorn from the sides by these pressures from competitive sports clubs is a really good example of the way in which it's really kind of hard to hold the center because these other forces are at work. And so we can talk about the sports clubs in a while, but so the church is a little platoon in a way that is embattled in this competitive atmosphere, but then the the clubs that are embattling it are themselves strange actors in this that comes out, come out in my discussion of this competitive sports, that these, these other aspects of the, of these little platoons, kind of like the family in a way, the sports clubs and private schools and colleges and preschools, they themselves, although we kind of envisioned them as, you know, people who kind of read Edmund Burke and have this kind of idea of a uh, fond idea of, of what civil society is supposed to look like, the way they function now is within these tight competitive structures. And so they, instead of acting like these little havens that we can, you know, take refuge in as citizens and as parents, they are instead a kind of machinery that we have to kind of link ourselves to in order to, in order to kind of have this success that we feel like, or at least avoid the negative outcomes that we fear for our children. Heaven for the stigma. <laughs> well, I, I was interested in the book and your discussion about how the parents view these sports leagues. And you sort of say that contrary to the stereotype of like the, you know, crazy hockey dad or soccer mom or whatever it is, you know, screaming at their kids to play harder, go faster, whatever it is, that they're almost sort of reluctant participants in this. And they actually can see some of the harm that comes to their kids from, you know, going all in on one sport or having their life, their family's life completely revolve around all these travel tournaments and that sort of thing. So can you just describe kind of what you, what you found when you interviewed some of these parents? So the parents, they provide a kind of record of people who are, have been just kind of, who've been kind of taken by the momentum of this process. So they say, well, you know, if the kids, you know, say eight years old and they sign up for competitive soccer, because really there's rec and there's competitive and you have to make a choice. And once you decide to go into competitive, then think it really intense. And you have to, if you're going to stay in, you have to do it this way. And so it's not like the, you know, the parents have made, I mean, some parents are really scheming. I'm not going to say that there aren't parents like this because I, I saw them, but I, they definitely seem like they were in the minority. 
some parents are, you know, scheming and super competitive, but a lot of them have just kind of, you know, found themselves in this, in this whirlwind. They kind of, they step into competitive sports because it's really the only real version of these sports that's being played once, you know, once you get above a certain age. And then they're just kind of obliged to do all these things simply to keep their kids in the sport. And they, and so instead of having your kid play a bunch of different sports, the risk is that if, if you say, well, you know, I want my son to get out of soccer and play basketball in the wintertime, or I want my son to get out of soccer and play tennis in the springtime. Well, you know, he's going to be competing for spots on competitive clubs. And if they sense a lack of commitment on his part, or they sense a decline or a, you know, he's not keeping up with his foot skills or whatever, then he's out. And this is the perception that the parents have. They, they don't really have any choice. It's either this or nothing. So the parents were really interesting. I find it was kind of, it was kind of sad. And there was just a kind of poignancy to it because I came to them expecting this intensity and this kind of craziness. And again, I, I caught a little cut whiffs of it here and there in different games. But most of the parents I talked to were just like, yeah, we're just trying to keep our heads above water. You know, my son's not getting enough rest. He, he, he barely has time to do his homework. He comes home from practice at 1030. He's got to be at school at seven in the morning, this kind of thing. I was going to ask you, what, what is lost? What is lost in the lives of kids as a result of this sort of phenomenon that's happening? I mean, all kinds of things. I mean, if you think about the things that they're not doing because they're doing this, a lot of these kids aren't having jobs because they're not learning how to, you know, get work skills because they're, they're you know, 24-7 committed to this project of getting into a good college. But they're also, the, you know, even their engagement in a, in a sport like in competitive club sports, you'll see there's a difference between, let's say, the cultures of the sports in high schools and see so your local community, your local varsity interscholastic sports, where the kids kind of play with the, the you know, kids they know from school and perhaps kids they've known all their lives. And you compare that to the cultures of competitive clubs where it's much more mercenary. The kids kind of hop from club to club as their parents are kind of seeking more playing time and, and that kind of thing. And so it's much more kind of atomized culture in the clubs as I perceived it. And it was told to me. No loyalty. There's no loyalty. And the kids don't really, they don't know each other very well. And so the idea of playing, I talk in my sports chapter, I talk about, I, I go into a bit of a digression on the Dutch historian, Johan Moisinga's book, Homo Ludens, which is a wonderful book. And, and, it, and it kind of tees up the, you know, what he thinks of, you know, he kind of like describes as the kind of essence of play as this kind of subversive, tightly communal, deeply meaningful activity. And that's in its, you know, sports can definitely have these characters. But when the sports are become uh, beset with all of these kind of systemic pressures, because if you, you, you look at the way the sports are organized, they become highly technical. There's all this kind of sports science that goes into it. And so the idea of play as this kind of spontaneous thing that kids enjoy as a group with the kind of subversive and solidaristic and a kind of antinomian character that is lost in favor of this much more kind of rationalized, almost professionalized approach to the game, to the childhood activity of play. And it's, yeah. it's a kind of sad thing. So again, one of the, I think the most interesting parts of the book is where you talk about like actual college admissions process. And so obviously like on the surface, everyone knows, all right, you know, colleges are trying, are sort of forcing this, pro this sports process or, or making everybody crazy about you know, their SATs and maybe not their SATs anymore, as we've discussed on this podcast, but their grades and, you know, all sorts of what is going to give them the competitive advantage. But you sort of talk about the, the college admissions process as sort of interfering in the moral autonomy of the family, that co the college admissions process, they're, they're sort of saying, you know, we're looking for somehow like the best kids, not like just, not just the most, the fastest or the best at hockey or the smartest, like, they actually think that they're going to 
engage in some kind of moral evaluation of your child and that college is also going to be this, I don't know, process of moral perfection too, I guess is the implication. But you're saying the college admissions offices are really sort of interfering in the process of raising your children down to kind of what the basic fundamental moral lessons are that you want your children to learn. Can you can you talk about that? Because I think that was such an interesting observation. Well, so, I mean, there's a couple of ways to go at this question. What I would say is that just to reiterate your point, to kind of put a sort of detail to it, if you read the kind of reform documents in which the elite college admissions personnel kind of describe what they're up to, and we talk about reforming their process, which is never actually reforming their process. It's always reforming typically two different groups of people, the kids, their applicants, and parents. So the availing and reform documents is never the college admissions process. It's always parents because they're raising their kids the wrong way. And so the, the thing that's important to keep in mind is that what the colleges are doing, so the way that the reasons why this kind of em- emphasis on virtue, on kind of the virtuous applicant has evolved is largely, are largely bureaucratic ones that, you know, as, this, as the process became more competitive and more and more kids looked kind of similar because they were all doing the same things. And, you know, starting this roughly in the early 90s, kids really started cluing into what was needed competitively to get into the better schools. And the premium that was perceived to attach to those getting into a better school also went up. So there's all these kind of incentives and practices that converged at, at this time. And so it made it hard for colleges to pick kids because the kids were all trying so hard that they all ended up looking a lot alike because instead of it being the odd rare kid who did extracurriculars, now all the kids were doing extracurriculars. And instead of doing one extracurricular, now they were doing five. And so they had, to, they had to kind of adapt and to kind of evolve new ways of telling the difference between these kids. So that was one thing. And so they kind of ended up, they ended up going into a much more individualizing approach where they, say, they kept saying, well, now we want to get to know the real kid. We want to get to know the real kid. So on one hand, it has a kind of therapeutic valence because they say they really want to get to know the real kid behind the application. And this is them basically admitting that they, they face a problem of opacity with these kids, right? They know the kids. On one hand, they kind of like have to put a lot into the moral character of these kids in order to legitimize their activity. But on the other hand, they know that a lot of this stuff is merely performed. And so they set up a sort of knowledge problem that I equate to psychoanalysis where they want to get through the layers of representation to the real kid underneath. And a lot of this gets, so it gets bathed both in a kind of therapeutic language and in a kind of moralistic language. We get this, because again, the departments, they're running in a, a grind of a process. This process is widely resented around the country. And one of the ways I think they, they meet this challenge, the, the discontent that is directed at them is by kind of moralizing the process. So they kind of legitimize what they're doing by saying, well, what we're really doing is generating better kids and not just picking better kids, but creating better kids. And I think, you know, on one hand, you can think, well, getting, what's wrong with creating better kids? But who's doing this? It's a particular population of people who are doing it. And they have particular agendas and a particular outlook. And it's basically, you know, college administrators, it's, it's bureaucrats. It's like the morality of bureaucrats. So Matt, then what, what is a parent to do with these perverse incentives? You know, I have a nine-year-old and an 11-year-old. So we're not yet dealing with college admissions, but I've succumbed to the pressure around the competitive sports. My son is in baseball and soccer and also social media. You know, my daughter wants the cell phone so she can have a TikTok page, you know, but we've resisted that. So we've actually, we've actually acted in the role of parents. Good for you, Ian. Yes. Yeah. Hold your we ground. Actually, we actually so. did say no to something. Good heavens. <laughs> <laughs> but Matt, like what does a parent do? How do you have the backbone to stand up against this? Well, I have to say, I mean, I don't have much of a backbone, frankly, but my wife does. And I, what I have is like, some some book learning 
the two of us make a pretty good team in that in that way because I can kind of I am walking around with this kind of armature of of critique, and my wife is simply a, a morally strong person, and she, you know, and the two of us. So my wife is also a high school counselor, right? And so another one of the the less favored constituencies from the college admission standpoint are the counselors because the counselors are looking after the kids. And the counselors kind of see what's done to the, the kids and, and up close by this process. And they, they've objected to certain of the more kind of overreaching moves that the admissions bureaucracy has made. So my wife is, has that outlook as well. And so, so it's, it's easy. I mean, you have, first of all, it's, it's almost impossible. I think that if I had someone who was less vigilant than I am, then it wouldn't, there's no way we could do it. You have, to, you have to be a team. You know, you have to kind of like merge your different dispositions into a kind of team fanaticism about some of this stuff which we also practice with regard to technology. My oldest daughter did not get a cell phone until she was almost out of middle school. And she only got it then because she was changing schools and she could, she had to be able to gather all her friends' contacts and stuff like that. Wait until eighth, Ian. I know, I got it. I got it. <laughs> and even then, I tell you, but then you, you wait till eighth and then you got your kid, you, oh, you pat yourself on the back that you waited till eighth grade to get your kid a cell phone. But then you have to turn around and look and see your kid on a damn cell phone. And it, you know, it really irks me. I, yes. I, I hate it. I really do. But you guys have opted out of a lot of this other stuff too. We have, and you know, and it was just like, it was just a early thing. I think it was, again, it was a combination of my, my wife has, I grew up playing competitive sports, not at club level, but in, you know, in high school, my youngest kid's a, a boy, my, my daughter, my daughters were not, were kind of indifferent about sports. And my son kind of got into it and turned out to be kind of good at soccer early on. And he was like the best kid on his, on his, you know, you know, U8 team, you know, dribbling around everybody. But, you know, we had to face the choice of whether or not we were going to put them in competitive because we knew what that entailed. Like it changed, you have to change the way your family works. If you're going to really go serious about it, if you're going to really let yourself be part of a competitive soccer environment. And, and we just said, no, we're not going to do it. And so, you know, I, I lament it certain because I, I'm a big sports fan. I, I love soccer. I love, you know, high level soccer. And it was kind of, I kind of bummed out that I, you know, I can't watch my son kind of grow as a soccer player. Have you but, been ostracized by other parents? No, I mean, no, I think we, I have a pretty good community. I think, you know, as my son's age level, a pretty good community of parents who do their own thing. Some of them are, are taking the plunge and some of them aren't. But, you know, they're pretty curious, I think, largely. <laughs> I think they find me a curious figure and they find Juliet and me a curious pair. And you'll see it, there's a, especially when it comes to phones, because the phone is the thing that no one can resist, right? And so when they see how long we held out with phones, no one gives us a hard time about that. They admire us. And they, in, and I think that they wish they could do it. They know that they're kind of like, they're giving into something that's not awesome when they get their kid a phone, whenever it happens. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one thing, it certainly seems like it's, it is important to at least be able to, you know, find some other people who, if they, even if they don't make the same choices, at least respect your choices. And, and, you know, I mean, Ian is ready to kind of lead a, a battalion in town, you know, to, to try to, you know, get the leagues to not practice on Sunday mornings or something like that. But I think, you know, for, for most people, this is a very daunting prospect and it's, it's hard to imagine how they're going to get themselves out of it. Do you have any other, any other thoughts or advice? You know, I have your, I'm going to disappoint y'all at the uh, American Enterprise Institute, but this is, you know, my conclusion is where my book takes a kind of left wing turn. And I, I just because I don't really see any way out of it that is not a political way that does not really involve changing the things that we used to think were great about American society, about the distribution of independent bodies and, you know, all these schools that we have, all these things that are, at one point I used to think that it was so fantastic that America had so many private colleges, you know, like what a wonderful thing. We had this great distribution of education opportunities. But at a certain point, these things get kind of networked into a single 
machinery of yeah. selection and a single hierarchy and everyone. And so the choice that they used to provide for us, they no longer provide because they're essentially one thing hierarchically arranged. And so, and for well, me- at the at the elite levels, I mean, elite, you know, if you right. can, there are lots of colleges that lots of different, that fill lots of different niches. It's right. just that for, for people who live in, I will say our milieu, right. <laughs> in this sort of obnoxious way, but if you're raising an elite kid in elite circles, these right. are the things you want for them. And so I reviewed Matt's book for a commentary. And one of the things that I pointed out at the end is that some of the people who are most resistant to this are actually, you know, religious conservatives because they live in this world where, you know, they often have a lot of kids. They don't have an enormous amount of money. They have a strong religious tradition that's supporting them. And they're like, actually, getting my kid into Yale is not the most important thing. And so, but I think that there are, frankly, there are liberal communities, some liberal communities like that too. But, but you know, playing this opt-out game is really hard to do on your own. Hard to do on your own. And, you know, it still leaves the, so, the larger social and political problem in, in place that these, you know, that the, this competition and the institutions that feed off and are formed by it have enormous influence and the kind of, there's still a whole generations or cohorts of kids that they are morally training, you know, that they're forming to their, you know, to their preferences and that's disturbing on its own. And so, so I, you know, I don't know, I, I mean, I'm a political theorist and so like I've kind of dabbled in a lot of different political ideas. But I found myself kind of like thinking, you know, democracy, you know, like one of the people that I've been kind of, you know, like a lot of people in the last few years, I've been a little bit of return to Christopher Lash, you know, who is, you know, combines this kind of fiery social conservatism with a kind of old fashioned, I would call it progressivism, but it's, it's unrecognizable from from the standpoint of today's progressivism, a kind of faith in democracy. And and I just you know, allowed myself to kind of imagine a kind of democratic politics where we could solve the collective action problem that this all is, this kind of Hobbesian competition that we're, you know, that we're caught in, or that kind of dominates the lives of so many families. In the case of Hobbes, it's a, it requires a political solution, you know, it requires a Leviathan. And I'm not saying we need a Leviathan, but some, <laughs> some way to change the kind of social contract as it operates now, such that these set of adaptations by families seem like rational ones. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. We really appreciate your thoughts on how to get out of this mess. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. And thanks so much, Matt Feeney, for joining us. And you can get this podcast or any episodes of our podcast on the AEI channel or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.